Welcome to the teaching ministry of C4 Church. Good morning, and to you online, we welcome you too. Thank you, signalers. Thank you. That was good. It was like the exits are here, here, and here. It's good. As we were saying, as Pastor Dave was just praying, we are beginning a brand new series called Believe. And so we're really excited you're joining us, that you online are joining us. And we hope that this year will be a year where we not only deepen our belief, but actually we see God do things we've been believing him for for a long time. Let me begin everywhere, this, this whole series, in one place. Let's start with the idea of belief. There is a vast gap between knowing about something and knowing it. There's a vast gap between believing in something out there and actually believing it. I think we all know this. In my own life, I believed children existed before I had them. Uh, When I'd go to other people's houses, I knew they were there. I interacted with them. And then I left and went home to my peace. There is a vast difference between believing in children in their existence, in their reality, and then at 3 a.m. changing a diaper. I now believe, not believe in. Some of my friends at this time are in very difficult situations. They're sick, mentally and physically. As I sit with them and say very little these days, they continually, different people, echo the same idea. I knew this stuff was out there. I had read books on it. I had talked to people. People in my family had been mentally or physically sick. But now I'm here. The gap between knowing about and knowing is now closed. A few weeks ago, Pastor Dave gave us a charge to serve. And do you remember his opening story where he went to Thunder Bay and he went to Swishelay? Do you remember that? And he declared to us, at least as Canadians, you watching online won't understand this, but unless I suppose you live in Buffalo or Florida, where we all tend to live also as Canadians, he declared that we don't go to Swiss Chalet for chicken. What do we go to Swiss Chalet for? Say it loud. The fries. Now, you can believe in the fries at Swiss Chalet. You can see the advertisements. You can watch it online. You can stand outside the window and observe people eating. You'll be charged for stocking, but you can do that. You you can walk into Swiss Chalet and smell them, but until you put them in your mouth after you've dipped them in ketchup and the sauce, which is the right way you're supposed to do it, then you will believe. Of course, you won't believe if you take them out because then they get soggy and it's a whole different conversation, as we all know. But that's the difference between believing in or believing something is out there or knowing about something and, and knowing it. What does it mean to believe? In our culture? What is it always meant to believe? What does it mean to believe in a biblical sense? Before I get going, let's just take Jesus for a moment. Does believing in Jesus mean you think he was a historical person? Some guy that, that walked around at some point in time? Does belief mean you admire him or you take up his cause or maybe you want to be like him? Does it mean you have warm feelings about Jesus or you give your time or money to really please him so he likes you in the end? No. Those beliefs may be good. Some of those beliefs are even necessary. But that is not where I or we ever start as Christians. See, as I sort of pointed out, a Christian understanding of belief is more than all of that. Not only do we acknowledge as Christians truth as truth, it means trust. It means to rely upon. It means to derive confidence in something or someone. So if you this morning say that you believe in Jesus Christ, you're really saying, I actually know him, I have met him, I trust him, I have placed my, here's the word, complete confidence in him. 
everything I know about this life, whatever happens while I'm dying and even after death, depends not on me, not on my family, not on my education, not on my religious worldview. It depends on a person, and his name is Jesus. See, that's what it means to really believe. It moves you from knowing about to knowing, believing that something is out there to actual belief. Now here at C4, our first core value is this. We value God's word. There are many ways that God speaks to us. There are many paths of revelation. But the ultimate, the supreme court of revelation, what sets us down for faith and life and practice is God's written word. So the question is, to start this series today and to start our whole year, is there a way to quickly overview the whole Bible? To overview the very core of our beliefs. See, since our theme is believing, we need at this moment to start at the foundation, at the heart, at the ground floor and ask, what do all Christians hold as true? What is the center of our movement and what is the boundary of our movement? Around 1800 years ago, as the church was growing unbelievably fast and took on different cultural forms as more and more people were actually entering our movement, uh, uh, we needed a summary. We, we needed a litmus test to know what was and what was not. Somewhere between 100 and 300 AD, some Christian leaders took a look at the Bible as it was at that moment and asked this question. What are the most important truths about the God we love? What are the most important truths about the God we're in relationship with already? The God revealed from Genesis to Revelation and in our hearts. And so they wrote what we now call in the church the Apostles' Creed. Creed, by the way, comes from credo, from Latin, meaning statement of faith. It's meant to be a summary of faith. It's not meant to be exhaustive. Now, the origins of creeds, just so you know, and the origin of confessing with our mouth comes right out of the Bible. If you read Paul carefully, he includes actual creedal statements that were said in local churches and even actually adds hymns and songs that were sung in the church right into the Bible. Philippians 2 is an actual song. It was the hill songs of its day, and it's right in Scripture. The very first creedal statement ever uttered in the local church is found in Romans 10.9. If you confess with your mouth, here it is, Jesus is Lord. That's it. And believe in your heart God has raised you from the dead. You will be saved. These cries, these confessions meant that Jesus was really Lord. Lord of their life. They would not worship any other God. They would not worship the emperor. They were declaring him to be the true and only Lord of the universe. That salvation was in him, through him, and by him alone. Now for some of us here today or online who've done church for a long time. We shy away from creeds because they feel too formal, or they're not, you know, the Bible, so whatever, or they're misunderstood, or they're said by so many people in our life that don't even believe what they're saying, or some of you are going, well, I used to go to a church that used to say it, and I'm just out. But I need to say this this morning as we gather here, and this is key. If you know Jesus this morning, I mean really know him, if you love him, if you've encountered God through Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit, creeds move from dead words or boring sections in worship services. They, they become for us anthems. They become cries of love and freedom because they are grounded in the truth of Scripture. 
They become the place where we declare in a world filled with millions of beliefs and millions of ideas that not all worldviews are equal. No, there are not many paths to God. No, you cannot make Jesus who you want him to be. And no, you cannot make Christianity what you think it should be for 2012. See, hear this this morning. Hear this in a culture that is continually changing. Our faith, our belief, our relationship emanates from God, not from us. Can I say that again? Our faith, our belief, our relationship with God doesn't start with us or culture or the changing worldviews of the day. It emanates from God. So for the first time or for the thousandth time, hear the best summary of what all, hold, all Christians hold is true, but not just in our heads, but in our hearts. Hear the Apostles' Creed. By the way, if you want to say it with me, good, but say it like you mean it. If you don't say it like you mean it, don't say it. Because this is the essence, the summary of our movement. We believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. But on the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven, and he's seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. And we all said loud, Amen. This is the heart of what we believe. Let's start where we need to in this year and for our whole faith. We believe in God. We start where we must start, the existence of God. We wholly, fully, unashamedly believe in the existence of God. The very first verse in the Bible brings it home. Reality does not start with creation or science or philosophy or history or ourselves. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We start reality with the beginning of one other person. God himself, who has always existed, he is the one we begin with. And by the way, he's not just a God. There are millions of people and millions of things that claim to be God. We hold as Christians that there is only one true living God. Our spiritual ancestors, the Jews, said this so beautifully, inspired by the Holy Spirit, where they cried out in Deuteronomy 6.4, 6, O hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is what? One. We believe in one God, not many gods. And this God, this one only true God, he is not distant. He is not unknowable. He is involved. He has chosen to show himself. He has chosen to reveal himself to a world in darkness. Time and time again in the Bible, these next ideas are sung and preached, declared, and oh, by the way, experienced. We believe in God, the Father Almighty. This is important. God at his core is a relational God. Please understand this morning that Father is a name of God. Many of us sitting here this morning when we hear the name Father don't actually think it's a name of God like Jehovah or Jesus, but it is a name. This is not saying that God is a male or he has a penis. Don't even worry about that conversation. This is so important because this is a name. 
We do not call God mother because that is not his name. Father is his name. Now why? Why is this revealed? For some of us, the image is so very deeply hard because our dads were broken. Our dads were not the dads they were supposed to be. And so when we come to have relationship with God, we struggle even uttering the words out, Father. See, that's fair. The pain, the damage that you live with and your family lives with is real. But this name is even more significant than for you. Think about it. Jesus, when he taught us to pray, said this is how you ought to pray. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed, glorified be your name. One wrote the Hebrew scriptures normally depict God not as the father of an individual, but as a father to his people, Israel. Pious Jews aware of the gap between a holy God and sinful human beings would never, ever dare address God as Abba, Daddy, dear Father. That's why Jesus was such a radical. He shocked many of his contemporaries by referring to God as his Father and inviting his followers to do the same. Now, rather, and this is important for you who come from the broken background, Rather than depicting God as some typical Middle Eastern patriarch who wielded unbelievable power within the family, usually unchecked, God reveals himself this way through Jesus and his teaching as a tender, a compassionate, a a father who's the real deal, who extends grace both to sinners and those who don't think they're in trouble, the self-righteous. God is father God is personal, God is tender, God is compassionate, God is grace. The most powerful, the most jaw-dropping, the most life-changing expression of this name is found actually in Jesus' teaching in Luke 15. If you've got a Bible there, please turn there physically or electronically. It's the grand parable that Jesus tells about the prodigal son. Do you remember it? A son and another son have a father. One of the younger sons, the younger son, comes to dad and says, Dad, I want my inheritance. Now, we would read that in a modern culture as impotent or just rude and, and, and angry. But listen, it's more than that. The young son comes up to the father and basically says to his father, I think that you're dead in my eyes. I don't like you. I hate you. Give me my money. The father chooses to oblige him. It says the son walks away and goes to a foreign land and spends all his money on wild living. Basically, the implication is this. He went and lived a club culture for years. Lots of sex, lots of drugs, lots of parties, a nice condo. Life was amazing. But suddenly, his money ran out. And oh, shock, nothing's changed. All his friends left. And then suddenly, something else takes place. A famine strikes the land. This son, this young Jewish man, suddenly ends up in this non-Jewish context, sitting among pigs. The worst thing anything could experience, a Jewish person could experience. He's feeding unclean animals, and he's actually so hungry, he wants to eat the food that the pigs have. And at this moment, it says in verse 15, 17, this brought him to his senses. Huh. And he said, all those farmhands working for my father... Sit down three meals a day, and I'm here starving to death. I'm going to go back to my father. I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against God, and I've sinned against uh, before you. I don't deserve to be called your son. Take me on as a hired hand. And he got right up, and he went home to his dad. When he still was a long way off, his father saw him. His heart pounding. He ran out. He embraced him. He kissed him. And the son started the speech, Father, 
I've sinned against God and I've sinned before you and, and I don't deserve to be called your son ever again. But the father, the father was not listening. He was calling his servants, quick, bring a clean set of clothes, dress him, put a family ri- uh, the ring of, uh, of our family on him, uh, put sandals on his feet. And then he got a grain-fed heifer and they roasted it. We're going to have a feast, he declared. We're going to have a wonderful time. My son is here, given up for dead. He is now alive, given up for lost, and now he is found. The father in Jesus' story loses its power for us in 2012. This is not what their listeners expected. Instead of waiting for this brutal son to come home, crawling back as any dignified Middle Eastern father would have done, The father in Jesus' story, one writes, keeps a lookout for him. As soon as he spots him, he runs out and throws his arms around his wayward son and showers him with kisses. But there's even more. See, traditional Middle Eastern men who wore long robes never, hear this please this morning, never ran in public, ever. This was the ultimate form of humiliation. See, the father understands that by running towards his son, all the people watching the son come back will be so in awe of him doing this humiliating act, it will take the focus away from the sinful son and look on on to the father. People will focus on this dignified, self-respecting landowner humiliating himself in public by revealing his legs. You want to know why God is father? Here it is. Because God runs towards us. God moves for us. God guards us when we don't deserve it. God forgives. God welcomes. God is a good father. Yet as we're going to see, even in this creed, God's love, though it's unconditional in the sense that it is open to all, it can only be experienced conditionally when we come back to him. And the gate that we walk through is Jesus. We believe in God as Christians. We believe in him, not just in some out there. We believe in him. We've met him, the Father, and he's also almighty. God is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present. He is sovereign. He is not just the author of life. He is the sustainer of life. And God, we confess wholeheartedly too, is the creator of heaven and earth. Creation. Beauty, color, the seasons, all we see and sense and experience is not, let me declare this today, is not a cosmic mistake. It is not some big bang without purpose. It is not some experiment of another alien race that we haven't met yet. God, the great artist, he has created the heavens and the earth. Reality is physical. Reality is spiritual. And they together make up reality, natural and supernatural, from angels to stars, from whales to trees, from the sea to the sky, the billions of stars. God created the heavens and the earth. It was David that cried out, and we started our worship service this morning with this. In Psalm 8, David cried out, when I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars, which you've set in place, what is mankind that you're mindful of them, human beings that you even care for them? We believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, but we need to stop right now. At this moment, the shadow of sin becomes clear for us if we're looking. See, when we lift ourselves up, when we put anything in front of our creator, when we end up worshiping not the creator, but the created, 
Nothing but brokenness shows up. Hear this this morning clearly, especially as we talk about the explicit gospel next week. The heart of sin, the heart of trespass, the heart of iniquity, the root of all brokenness in my life, your life, in our human family's life, and even in creation itself, is because of misdirected worship. Every time we lift up what we think God should be, every time we lift up what we think politically, sexually, emotionally, spiritually, and we violate who God is or what he said, it's idolatry. It's idolatry. It's why Paul said so strongly in Romans 1.25, humanity has exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they have worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. And we all said, Amen. Adam and Eve believed the lie that Satan said, that God was afraid of us, and if we could know good and evil, we could be like God. And the brokenness has continued ever since. We believe in God, the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. But that's not the end of the story. God has shown himself fully. He's come back for us in the face, in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. That's why as Christians, unlike every other faith on earth, we believe fully in Jesus Christ, his only son, who is our Lord. The very first Christian sermon ever preached was by a guy named Peter, probably grade two educated from the backwater of Israel, from Galilee. He stands up and he says this in Acts 2.36, Therefore let all Israel be assured of this, God has made this Jesus whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. We believe that the Jesus of history is the same Jesus as faith. We hold that Jesus' coming shows God's love towards us, that God is involved in the universe, and that God is interacting with us. Jesus is the Christ. He's the anointed one, the long-awaited Messiah. Yes, he actually is the king of the Jews because he is the Messiah that has already come. Thousands upon thousands of Jewish faithful people pray at this moment at the Wailing Wall for the coming of the Messiah. And we stand and say he has already come. His name is Jesus. He is the king of the Jews, but he's also the king of kings. And why? Because he is God's only son and he is Lord. See that little phrase, only son? As modern hearers, sometimes we get confused. We, we miss again the power of the statement. See, let me break it down this way. If you have the DNA of God, you have to be God because only one in the whole of the universe has the DNA of God. That's God himself. If you claim to be God's son, you're claiming to be God because there's only one who has God's DNA, God. When early Jews heard early Christian Jews call Jesus the Son of God, when Jesus himself made this claim, they were enraged. Why? Because they understood that we and he was claiming that he was equal with God himself. John starts his gospel this way. In the beginning was the word, that's Jesus. And the word was with God and the word was God. And he was with God in the beginning. C.S. Lewis rightly said, if someone claims to be God, either he is, or he's the most dangerous devil on earth, or he's the worst liar in history. But you must come down to one of those three conclusions. Well, we come down and say, no, no, he is who he claims. You can say anything about Jesus except call him Father. You can say anything about Holy Spirit except call him Father and Jesus. We, we, we believe in Trinity. Jesus is God. He's the king. He's the only true king. 
He's the only incarnation of God in human history. He is greater than every leader, every political activist, every thinker, every politician. He is greater than every religious idea that has ever existed. That is why that creedal statement I started with is so important. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, he's been raised from the dead, you will be saved. By the way, just for a moment, you online too, just, you can either watch or listen to this. You see that little phrase, our Lord? It's important. I want you to really hear this this morning. If Satan showed up here at C4 this morning, and every one of the demons that follows him, let's pray they don't, but if they did, they could say this whole creed. You know that, right? They could stand there and put their hand over their wicked heart and say everything in this creed. Why? Because they believe it is true. But they can't say that. See, this is the linchpin in the creed. Our Lord. It moves it from just belief or idea or some conceptual thing to encounter. It's about faith. It's about relationship. Satan can never declare he's my Lord. But we do. We must understand that when we confess this, this is about relationship. This is personal. This is faith. This is allegiance. and moves us from knowing about something to knowing him. This Jesus, who is the Son of God and our Lord, we believe was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. This is the heart of the Christmas story we will celebrate in a few months. Well, if you're at Costco, I suppose they're already celebrating it. Everything's out. It's the beginning of our movement. God has come for us when we couldn't get to him. He is human like us. He's not adopted. He doesn't appear human. No, no. Jesus is fully human. And yet he's fully God. The virgin birth matters because without the virgin birth, Jesus would be born into sin. Alistair McGrath, who is one of the great thinkers in our movement right now, wrote these words. Uh, Lean in and listen. Christians believe that we're saved only through Jesus. What does that imply, he writes. Well, it's obvious that Jesus is a man, a human being like all of us. But if he's just a man like the rest of us, he shares our need for saving. In other words, he can't redeem us. He's actually part of the problem, uh, not the solution to it. So there has to be some essential difference between all of us and Jesus if he's called Redeemer. After all, Christianity has always insisted that Jesus is the solution to our problem rather than he is part of it. On the other hand, if Jesus is just God and and God alone, he has no point of contact with us. He can't relate to us who need redemption. But, But here's the point. His humanity provides the point of contact. So we arrive at the conclusion, we believe with our whole hearts that Jesus is fully God and fully human if he's to redeem us. If you do not believe in the virgin birth, you are not a Christian because you will not believe in the Jesus we believe in. In scripture. We believe that Jesus lived that life. And when he was 33. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified. He was died. He was buried. And he descended to the dead. This is not myth. This is real. Our faith is rooted in actual history. Jesus was really crucified under Roman rule, died and descended unto the dead under the time of Pontius Pilate. He suffered horrific torture. He was murdered. And the real Jesus that we celebrate and love shared the fate of all of us who will die, which is everyone. Yet this was for purpose. 
This is not some random act of violence in the back of some ancient Roman world. This is heaven's work. This is God's plan to overcome all that separates us from our very nature and purpose and calling. See, that's why this next phrase is very important. That if we were in the south of the United States, many of you would be yelling back at me in the next few seconds and standing up and clapping. Jesus did not stay dead. Unlike all the others that have died, he's the only one to come back from the other side. Have you thought about that? We're not talking about Jesus lying on some operating table for 30 seconds or two minutes and seeing some famous light and coming back and writing a book and making millions. No, 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 no. Jesus was dead. Count them. One, two, three days. And he came back to life. On the third day, Jesus rose again. That's the heart of it. He is physically alive. Not just ethereally alive. Physically alive. That is why St. Paul, the one who hated us, who murdered people like us, who met Jesus in a vision and became one of our great thinkers, wrote this in 1 Corinthians 15. For what I have received, I pass on to you as first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. He says in verse 14, If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and your faith is too. In other words, this is the stupidest hoax in history. I'm out of a job. I'm going somewhere else and all of you need to give up. But if Jesus has been risen from the dead, oh, this is the best hope humanity has ever seen. Jesus is alive. And this Jesus, who we worship and love, stands right now for us. He mediates for us. We believe that Jesus ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He who has overcome sin and death and the demonic. He has the Father's ear. He is for us. He prays for us. And because he's God's Son and our Lord, and because he's the only one that's overcome death, and because he's the only one that has the right to sit at the original true source of power, it says that Jesus will judge the living and the dead. When we die, hear this please this morning, when we die, the first person we're going to see is not your grandmother, it's not your cat, it's not the person you've wanted to see your whole life, the person that you cannot know. Jesus. Change your view of eternity right now. Yes, if those people were believers in time, you're going to see them. But the first person we face is Jesus the Christ. No matter who you are, how you lived, what religion you were part of, whether you believed or didn't believe there was a God, atheist, agnostic, witch, Jew, Muslim, Buddhist, fill in the blank, nominal Christian, you will face Jesus, and Jesus will be our judge. For us that know him, this isn't terror. This is joy. For we who know him, we actually can't wait to see him. We sing to him all the time. We give to him. We pray to him. When we get to see him, even when we're judged by him, it's going to be a great thing. Because why? He's passionately for us. We know him already and we trust him. But for those who do not know him, this day will be truly terrifying. terrifying. For at that moment, all that they have put their trust in will fade in the brilliance of the face of Jesus. Whether you're comfortable with it or not, here's the truth. Revelation 20 says, I saw a great white throne, and him who seated on it, and earth and sky fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were open. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged. It says in verse 15, if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, that means relationship with Christ, 
He was thrown into the lake of fire. Never forget this morning that hell was never God's want or desire. But it is very, very real. It is a place where God is not. It is a place where we actually, though, choose to go. Again, C.S. Lewis, that famed atheist turned Christian, wrote these, these amazing words. God loves us too much to want us to wind up in any sort of hell in this life or eternally. But God loves us too much to cram heaven down our throat. Summary, if you don't want God in this life, you probably won't want him in the next. Our sin is that serious. Our rebellion is that real. We believe that Jesus will judge everyone. We also believe that God is continuing his work of redemption with that in mind. We as a church, all churches around the world that love Jesus and hold the scriptures high, believe in the Holy Spirit, who is God. This isn't Star Wars, everybody. He's not just some force. He's a person. Never say it about the Holy Spirit. Say he. Say he, please. Loud. He. He's God. He's the one that convicts us of sin. He's the one that brings Jesus into our life. He's the one that gives us spiritual gifts and gives Jesus' character to us. He's the one who empowers us to live a Christian life. He's the gas in the tank so we can actually do this thing right. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12, 12, so it is with Jesus. We've been all baptized into one spirit, into one body. I love this. Whether Jew, Greek, slave, or free, we're all given the one spirit to drink. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you come from. When you meet Jesus, we all have a level playing field through the Spirit of God. Beautiful. Not only that, it says we have a greater assurance. In Ephesians chapter 1, it says, Having believed, we've been sealed by the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. You can't lose your faith. You can't walk away. You're not big enough to kick out God. The Holy Spirit has been putting you like a seal. And trust me, when God says you're mine, you're his. The Holy Spirit is the essence of our movement. And that's why we declare without a shame in this place, we also believe in the Holy Catholic Church. Now I heard when we were confessing it, it got a little quiet in here. I don't know if I believe in that. Yes, you do. You're like, no, I don't. Yes, you do. This doesn't mean Roman Catholic. It doesn't mean Orthodox. It doesn't mean Protestant. Catholic means, everyone ready? Universal. That's all it means. We believe in a holy, universal church. A church is not an institution. It's not a building. It's the living body of Jesus made up of normal people forgiven. A people united globally right now by the Holy Spirit. We're even united with all of those who have already died in Jesus. Have you ever thought about that? The body of Jesus is not divided by death. That's why Peter wrote in 1 Peter 2.9, you're a chosen people. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful, what? Light. We believe in the holy Catholic Church, and that's why we can also say we believe in the communion of saints. You say, well, what do you mean by... Every Christian sitting here today is a saint. Congratulations. You didn't need papal approval. You're in. Every Christian on earth is a saint because at this moment, if you know Jesus and you've trusted in him, God the Father looks at you through his son's work and sees the spirit residing in you and says, you are clean. Saint means holy one, set apart. At this moment, we are positionally holy, but we're called to live out that position in everyday life. 
Never forget, if you condemn yourself or the devil condemns you and says you're not worthy, oh yes you are, you are a saint of God. That is the starting point of your identity. Nowhere else. Nowhere else. We believe in the communion of saints. Crothers Creek Community Church C4, we are a communion of saints. God help us to act that way. Okay. And because of the Holy Spirit, the only reason why we dare even believe in a holy Catholic church, that we dare call ourselves saints, is this. I love this. We believe in the forgiveness of sins. We really do. We're clean. God knows everything we have ever done. Let me say this with such strength this morning. God will never forget your sin. God will never for eternity forget everything John Thompson has done wrong. But here's the difference. Every time within his all-knowingness, he remembers what I've done. He looks back at Jesus and says, oh right, I put it on him. God is all-knowing, but he's all-merciful. We believe in the forgiveness of sins. That is why Jesus' best friend again wrote in 1 John 4.10, This is love. Not that we loved God, but he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So that's why we cry out with all of heaven and earth that we believe in the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. And we all say loudly, amen. We believe in eternal life. We believe that a new heavens and a new earth are coming. We actually believe that as Jesus was physically raised from the dead, so we will also. That is the difference between every non-Christian funeral and Christian funeral. We weep and we warn and we wail the same. But the difference is we can declare this is not the end. We will be raised as Jesus was raised. In his body, all things were overcome, and our mourning will turn into joy. That is why in Revelation 21, it says, The old order of things has passed away, and a new order has come, and there will be no more what? Death, mourning, crying, pain. That is the good news of great joy for all people through Jesus. This is the heart of our movement. We start our year here. With a clear picture of God, a clear picture of his work, a clear picture of his will and his promises. The foundation of the house must be clear and stable so we can build upon this as we explore more about who we believe in and what we believe in and what we believe this God is up to around us. And also, we need to have this clear so when we approach God, we will have faith for what God is going to do in this church, what he's going to do in our families, what God is going to do in our region, what God's going to do around the globe. This creed helps us in a world where all roads are believed equal. And there is no such thing as absolute truth. We are reminded and we confess what has been confessed for 1,800 years. No, no, there is truth. This confession leads us back to the encounter many of us have had with Jesus himself. It reminds us of truth. It brings us to see that lines must be drawn. And just because we have a similar religious experience to others does not all mean we have all met the same God. God is Father, God is our Lord and Son, He is the Holy Spirit. But this creed also, and I end here, moves us to deeds. It moves us to action. This is not some conceptual idea. This is a confessing of something most significant. It's this. We don't confess an idea in this church. We confess and believe in and know a person. His name is Jesus. And every time Jesus walks into a new life, and you will know that you've really met him if this is your experience. 
Not only in time will he move in and change you, but your beliefs more and more and more will radically change no matter what the culture says because you are now being aligned to God himself, the creator, and his word. If your beliefs have never changed about anything, you don't know him. When he moves in, he changes people radically, deeply, relationally, forever. I end this, uh, this message this way. Three weeks ago in our new venue at our Next Generations uh, ministry, there was a baptism. And I got to meet this young guy. He's 28 years old. And as I watched the baptism and as 200 plus youth and young adults were clapping and cheering him on, I said, we need to show this to our, our morning community because his story reveals in such a poignant way what it means to really know, not just know about, to know, to really believe This baptism video reveals in our own community, when Jesus moves in, how your beliefs cannot stay the same. Watch this story and be encouraged that God is doing a new thing among us. Thanks for joining us today. If you want to know more about C4, get connected to the life of the church, or give to the ministry, visit our website at www.c4church.com. 